Well, good morning and uh, welcome to Auckland EV. My name is Rowan. If I haven't met you before, I'm one of the other pastors here. Um, why don't we pray together as we think through this next part in our series about heaven and hell and what happens afterwards. Why don't we pray? Lord, as we look to your word, as we've just heard your word read to us, we ask that this morning we might fix our eyes on your view of heaven, that we would get rid of the kind of views that we have and we'd actually hear what you have to say about this picture that so many of us long for. We pray this in your son's great name. Amen. Well, life after death, it seems common to me, is something that's believed in some way by most of humanity. It's like humans have this instinctive knowledge or want or desire that that there's more. Uh, In the pyramids in Egypt, when you come across embalmed bodies, um, there's often maps beside them. Why is that? Well, it's a guide for for the future use about how people will will kind of walk around in in the place they're going to. In the Greeks and the Romans, they believed in that the spirits would come and they would enter into this spirit world in which they would live after death. Native Americans, they they buried their people with bows and arrows in their tribal graves so that they were armed when they came back. It seems lots of different cultures have different views, yes, but some sense of a life after death. Why is that? Well, Ecclesiastes 11 tells us that God has put eternity in their hearts. There's some sense in which to be human has some form of us having stitched into our very fabric of who we are, some sense of that there's more to come. Yet it seems to me when we look at this topic of heaven and we think about the afterlife, there seem to be two extremes on our take, two extremes that we see before us. See, for many of us, the idea of an afterlife is just, well, it doesn't really affect us. I don't know how many of you got up today and went, yeah, I'm looking forward to heaven. I don't know how often heaven is kind of on our radar. For me, it's kind of like the everyday things of here and now kind of start to eclipse what God lays out for us in his word. The place that we'll spend eternity, by far the, the largest proportion of our existence, gets relegated to like an occasional thought. I was like, why is that? Why does that happen in me? I think so often it's because we're drugged by the well-being and comfort and health that we experience and of society around us. Quite often the only time we we think about what happens next is when we run out of drugs. It's when the happiness wears off, the pleasures washed away and the cracks of the facade that, that we see in this world begin to show the reality of what's going on. But what I want us to do this week and next is to lift our focus from what's immediately in front of us, from the here and now, to this incredibly amazing picture God paints for us of heaven. Heaven shouldn't be so far away, so theoretical, so ethereal in our minds. For those who trust in Jesus, heaven is our home. Our citizenship is of God's kingdom. This is our future. That is our reality. And if you're here today checking out Christianity, I hope that you see a different picture of what heaven is something far more attractive than a place full of sugar and spice and all things nice something far better than fluffy angels with halos floating around on clouds something none of us deserve but something all of us when we see in its full glory want with a deep longing 
The other extreme that we kind of take with this view of heaven is those people that are kind of heaven crazy. I don't know if you ever come across anyone like that. They're kind of always talking about what it's going to be like and these pictures of, of what heaven will look like. I was listening to a talk from a guy this week who was talking about um, the most popular books throughout the last decade. And it kind of struck me. Do you know what the most popular Christian, evangelical, kind of gospel-centered tribe of people, kind of Protestant book was that was published in the last 10 years? Any, any kind of ideas? Anyone want to call out? What do you reckon? What's the most popular Christian book of the last 10 years? Sorry? Left Behind? Thanks. No? The Shack? Maybe? Love Wins? Possibly? Here it is. Heaven is for real. Heaven is for real. Within three weeks of its release in 2010, the book debuted on the New York Times bestseller list. Three weeks, bang, on the list. Two months later, the book hit number one. It became the number one best-selling non-fiction paperback, full stop. Number one best-selling non-fiction paperback. Four years later, it's still on the list. Today, it's number 13. Four years later, it hasn't left the list of the, of the best-selling non-fiction paperbacks. What is it? It's this fanciful account of a four-year-old boy who talks about when he went to heaven. He got a halo and wings, and then when he was there, he, he didn't like them because they were too heavy. He, he claims to have sat on Jesus' lap while angels sang to him. He even says he met God, the Holy Spirit, who he describes as kind of blue. In the movie that's been released and is out now, heaven is apparently a place of great comfort and beauty where almost everyone automatically goes. At least, there seems to be no suggestion of anything else. Over 8 million copies have been sold. But that's not to be confused with another book called The Boy Who Came Back From Heaven. It's a bestseller as well by Kevin Malarkey. I heard a guy say that his last name is, is a pun intended. Uh, Malaki writes about his six-year-old son who's allegedly made multiple trips to heaven and back after a car accident. His son, Alex, has personally seen Satan. He describes him as a funny-looking mouth, a few moldy teeth, no noticeable ears, two bony arms and two bony legs. Again, that's not to be confused with another book called My Journey to Heaven, What I Saw and How It Changed My Life by Marvin Bestman, or Flight to Heaven by Dale Black, or Heaven and Back, A True Story by Mary Neal, or 90 Minutes in Heaven by um, Don, not John Piper, but Don Piper. Uh, 90 days, so Nine Days in Heaven by Dennis Prince. The, our books, our, our Christian bookshops are filled with these stories, none of which you'll find in our bookshop over in Mel's Nest after church. I want to say, make no mistake, there is money to be made from fanciful views of the accounts of the afterlife. The back cover of Heaven is for Real says this, and the quote's on the screen. Heaven is for real will forever change the way you think of eternity. Heaven is for real, this book, 8 million copies, will forever change the way you think of eternity. Do we want it to change the way we view of eternity? Do we want our view of what God is making to be described by a three or four-year-old boy's view of what went on and what he told to his parents? See, our problem with heaven, our problem with heaven is that we so often base it on fanciful descriptions of kids and their dads. 
rather than letting God's word change my view of eternity, shape my view of what heaven will look like. John MacArthur um, wrote a book recently and, and sums up kind of all these accounts so well. I, I love some of John's stuff. I don't love all of it necessarily. But listen to this. For anyone who truly believes the biblical record, it's impossible to resist the conclusion that these modern testimonies, with their relentless self-focus, their relatively scant attention they pay to the glory of God, they're simply untrue. They're either figments of the human imagination, dreams, hallucinations, false memories, fantasies, and in the worst case, deliberate lies, or else they are the products of demonic deception. We know this with absolute certainty because Scripture definitively says that people do not go to heaven and come back. People do not go to heaven and come back. The psalmist says, the Proverbs, Proverbs 30 verse 4 says, Who has ascended to heaven and come down? Who's been there? The answer, John 3, 13, No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. All the accounts of heaven in Scripture are visions, not journeys taken by dead people. And even the visions of heaven that we have within the pages of the Bible are, are pretty rare in Scripture. You can count them on one hand. There's four. That's it. Isaiah and Ezekiel and the apostles Paul and John. Four people speak about pictures of heaven. There are two other biblical figures, um, Micah and Stephen, who got glimpses of heaven. But what they saw is just merely mentioned, not described. All of these were prophetic visions. They weren't near-death experiences. Not one person who was raised from the dead in the Old or the New Testament ever wrote down for us what they experienced of heaven. Not one. That includes Lazarus, who had a lot of time in the grave to think about it, to experience it, right? Four days he was dead. Not one account do we have of what they saw. But all of them agree perfectly. They are all fixated on God and His glory. That's what defines heaven. It's what illuminates everything there. Every one of the biblical accounts that speaks of what heaven is like is overwhelmed, is petrified, is put to silence by the sheer majesty of God and His holiness. And notably, missing from all the biblical accounts are the frivolous features Juvenile attractions that seem to dominate every account of heaven currently on the bestseller list. So, why are we buying this stuff when we've got the Word of God? I want to hold out to you today that we want to come to God's Word and let it shape our view of heaven. So, what is heaven according to the Bible? Well, it's kind of the word heaven uh, in Greek, uranos, is, is Translated into three different ideas. Uh, the first one is space, kind of the place where the stars exist. Um, and so you get this view of, of heaven being called the place where the stars are. So Matthew 24, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Heaven, the sky and, the, and earth. Or, or Acts 4.24, when they heard this, they all raised their voices to God and said, Master, you are the one who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Do you see that? Heavens, everything that exists above the space, above the earth, the earth and the sea and everything that's in them. 
The second kind of view of, of heaven or a way it's translated is sky. So Matthew 6, 26. Uh, look at the birds of the sky, heaven. The word is the same word. Look at the birds of heaven. Uh, they don't sow or reap or gather into barns, yet your heavenly father feeds them. Aren't you more worthy than they? Now, here you've got a, a great verse where you've got two different words for heaven used. The, the birds of the sky, the birds of the heaven, and then it talks about our heavenly father. Like, is God our sky daddy? Like, is that what he's saying? That he's just, he's flapping around like the birds somewhere that we see? No, there's actually a difference here. There's the sky and then there's heaven itself, which is the third way we kind of take heaven. It's the place God is. How are we to think through what heaven is when we talk about that place after death? The place God is. Hebrews 9.24 For the Messiah did not enter a sanctuary made with hands, only a model of the true one, but into heaven itself, so that he might now appear in the presence of God for us. Do you see that? Heaven is where God is. It's where he's magnificence is expressly revealed his perfection shining in unimaginable splendor and beauty heaven is the place of god's glory in fact everything says scripture is created for god's glory we're going to spend a bit of time here and i think you'll see why in a moment see everything exists for god and that includes heaven the very first words of the bible what are they in the beginning god created the heavens and the earth the sky and the land, all that exists. Why did he do that? Why, why has he made the heavens and the earth? He, he had no need for anyone else. He had no need for anything else. As Father, Son and Holy Spirit, he's always been, he's always existed. He's been perfectly self-sufficient for eternity. And he always will be. So why did he do it? Why did he create the heavens and the earth? Why did he create you? Well, as you look through scripture, there's an overwhelming and consistently thumping answer for his glory. For his glory. That you might see him as he really is, that, that people would be like, wow, look at who he is. So Psalm 19, verse 1, so, so clear. It should be something that's on our minds all the time. The heavens declare what? The glory of God. As we look at the amazingness of, of the world around us, it declares not how amazing the world around us is, but how great its maker is. The psalmist says in, in Psalm 73, you will guide me with your counsel and afterwards you will take me into glory. He's describing heaven is the place of God's glory. Hebrews 2.10, for bringing many sons to glory, it was entirely appropriate that God, all things exist for him and through him, should make the source of their salvation perfect through sufferings. The Bible's line consistently is heaven is about God and his glory. Heaven is the arena of where God is like magnificently displayed. It wasn't always this way. Originally, all of creation was displaying his glory. When God created the world, it was good. It was very good. When he placed mankind in the garden to look after the world, to live with God as, as their ruler, with God as the one who defined what right and wrong was, everything was good for humanity, for God, and God's glory was seen everywhere. 
But once humanity rejected God, once we installed ourselves as the one who defined good and evil, once we said to God, I just don't want to live your way, I think I want to live my way, sin wreaked havoc in the theater of God's glory. Our lives kind of acted like a wrecking ball throughout what God had made. So Genesis 6, 5 and verse 11, the earth was corrupt before God and filled with violence, not how it was created to be, not glorious like God made it. Or Romans 8, 20 to 21, for creation was subjected to futility, to the bondage of corruption. God said, you want to run the world your way? You want to boot me off the one who sets what good and evil are? Then you can experience the effects of that. And that's called what we live in today. A life where God is not glorified as he, as he fully is, where we aren't living the way we should. It left us longing for God's glory to be restored. For every pang of suffering, every experience of brokenness in the world and in ourselves is a cry to God that his glory be restored, isn't it? That things would be put right. Well, the moment we get into the New Testament and and Jesus steps onto the scene, this one whose birth we're about to celebrate, the classic verse, Luke 2.13. It's read at most Christmas services. Suddenly, there was a multitude of heavenly hosts, heavenly armies with angels praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and peace on earth to people he favors. See that? Jesus arrives, glory to God. Glory has arrived. God has arrived to restore things, to put things right. John, um, the apostle, says God's glory was visible in Jesus. He, Jesus, makes it possible for humanity, for us, to be forgiven, to undo the damage that we've done for kicking God out of his place and to be transformed. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, from glory to glory, into the image of Christ Jesus. But we never fully reach it, do we? We still experience that uh, brokenness, the havoc wreaked from us turning our backs on God from a world that is against Him. Even those who trust in Jesus, the promise isn't that everything will be totally rosy and fine now. Yes, there's a start. Yes, Jesus has come and he's restored our relationship with God that we may know him, but we, we aren't fully as we will be. But when Jesus returns again, we will be raised. Our bodies changed forever. Transformed. Glorious. The whole created universe will be renewed when God reconciles to himself all things. The effects of sin removed. Everything Satan has done cancelled. And the new people of God will come down from God out of heaven to earth. There'll be a new heaven and a new earth. A new sky and a new land. One phenomenally brilliant reality. Pulsating with God's glorious presence. There, God's glory will be fully restored. Then, that is heaven. Heaven is created 
first and foremost for God's glory. It's the place of God's glory and where his glory is most fully known. And on that day, heaven and earth become one. How I long for it, don't you? But this picture of heaven points to one thing plain and clear. Heaven is not for our sake. It's not for our sake. Heaven doesn't exist for you and me, not not primarily. We have to correct our picture. We think about, oh, I'd like to think of heaven as, or it would be nice if. It's not about us. It's about God's glory. It's not there to offer us you know, a smorgasbord of pleasures or to make us happy uh, or, or an eternity of well-being, although it does all that. <laughs> and we'll see more of that next week and how amazing it is. But first and foremost, God created heaven for his glory. And if we don't get that point that I'm hammering and repeating myself on, then our whole concept of heaven is poisoned. It's half-baked and corrupted and pathetic It just looks on what joys I can experience rather than the amazing magnificence of God and his glory. So God-centered is the Bible's view of heaven. It sometimes interchanges the word God and heaven. They mean the same thing. Like the prodigal son in Luke 15, he, he comes back to his father and says, I've sinned against heaven and against you. See that? I've sinned against God, the place where God is. Matthew speaks of the kingdom of God, but he doesn't call it the kingdom of God. He says the kingdom of heaven. To think of heaven in any way or shape or form as something apart from God, something extra to God, is to empty it of its goodness. It's to sell yourself short. Nothing will compare to the phenomenal brilliance of being in God's presence. And his glory so clearly seen across this world. And the sooner we shift, the sooner we'll get the importance of it. The importance of putting him first, of seeking him, of understanding how amazing it is to live in relationship with this God. I think so often I find myself thinking of the joys that heaven will bring. No more pain, no more suffering, no more crying, endless joy. But so rarely do I picture thinking of being in God's presence, of experiencing his glory and how great that will be. Friends, we need to confess our blindness, our self-centeredness and come to the God who has shown us how amazing he is and keep showing us that. We need to confess that we so often downplay the glory of God that we miss what this universe is about. In John 14, 3, Jesus says, If I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come back and receive you to myself so that where I am, you may also be. See, Jesus describes heaven as being not just seeing God's glory, but being with God's glory, being with Jesus himself. Imagine it. Seeing God in the face, face to face, Jesus, the creator and sustainer of all things in his full glory right there. Not just an idea, not just knowing he's in us by his spirit, which he is now, but when everything is put right, being with him. Jesus doesn't give any more detail of what this is like. That's enough. You'll be with me. 
And when we want more, when we seek more, we're going, we're actually downplaying Jesus. You want more than me? You'll be with me. How often have you, like me, read Jesus' words to the thief on the cross? Luke 23, 43, it's on the screen. Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. I'm like, yes, I long for paradise. Paradise is my focus. Today you'll be with me in paradise. But maybe Jesus is saying, today you'll be with me in paradise. Paradise is the place Jesus is. Nowhere in the Bible does it speak of believers going to heaven when they die. Instead, they go to be with Christ. Every time. Heaven is inextricably linked and piercingly focused throughout the whole New Testament on Jesus and his glory. And let me show you a few reasons why. Number one, Jesus brings us to heaven. Um, John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He's the only way to get there. He's the only one who can achieve that for us. He brings us to himself. No one's perfect like he is. All of us are dreadfully deficient of the perfection of God, aren't we? We don't even live up to our own expectations of ourselves, let alone God, let alone perfection. Just a moment's glimpse of God's glory. You kind of see it a couple of times throughout Scripture. The Mount of Transfiguration, when they kind of, they see Jesus transformed and Peter doesn't know what to say. He just bumbles around. He's like, it's good for us to be here. Should we build you a tent? He's just like, he's gone. He doesn't know what's happening. A moment's glimpse of the reality of if we saw Jesus as he truly is, his glorified picture will be enough to show us that we are not deserving of heaven. A worm is more likely to be a brain surgeon than you or I being fit on our own merit to enter God's presence. Jesus is the only way to have our rebellion forgiven. He's the only one who has paid our debt, who has secured our forgiveness. We have the option of responding to Jesus, saying, oh, I don't need you, thanks for what you've done or whatever, but I think I'm fine on my own two feet. And that's totally valid, totally, you can do that. But the only way you can get the benefits he brings, the only way you can be with him is to accept his forgiveness, is to accept what he's offered. He's the only one who speaks to the Father in our defense. Guilty is the charge, but forgiven. He's the one who speaks to God on, on our account. Satan may wish to sift us like wheat, but Jesus prays for us so our faith will not fail and our forgiveness never fade. In 1865, Elvina Hall penned these words, and they're brilliant. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Jesus is the only way to experience God's glory forever. Like, if God's glory is seeing Jesus, do you think there'd be another way? Suddenly it doesn't make sense. Always lead to Jesus. No. It's him that he's bringing us to. It's by his death on the cross that we're, we're enabled to be forgiven. 
Secondly, in heaven, Jesus will be clearly seen. We'll see him clearly for the first time. We'll see him as he really is. Not just physically, not just like the apostles saw him walking around on earth in the first century, not just the historical figure of Jesus, but as he really is. God in a bod. God in a body. Those who've trusted in Jesus are right now joined to him, united with him so closely that his death is our death. His life is our life. So intimate, so unbreakable is that bond that we're called members of his body. We get to be united to this amazingly glorious one. We don't see him perfectly yet, do we? We forget his amazingness. I forget his wonder. I get worried with the things around me. They eclipse the amazingness of Jesus. I become complacent. I become tired, apathetic. I to see Jesus as he really is. I long for that day. 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says, For we see indistinctly, as in a mirror now, but then face to face. For now we see indistinctly, as in a mirror, but then we see face to face. 1 John 3, we know that when he appears, we'll be like him because we will see him as he is. We have moments, don't we? Where where we capture a little sense of Jesus' amazingness. We remember at Christmas, the birth of the creator of the universe. He's coming to earth. We remember at Easter that he would die for me, that he would take the penalty for me like no one else has ever done. And when I recognize who he is, we have these moments where we get a glimpse. A more captivating glimpse than normal as we reflect on what he's done. And I love those moments. They're great. We should seek them often. Why wouldn't we? It's a great joy to be able to understand who he really is. But to see him as he really, really is. I long for that day. To be with him. To know him in his complete, glorious magnificence. In Revelation 1, 17, John the Apostle describes what happens when he, he's taken up in this vision uh, and kind of comes before Jesus. Uh, he, he, John had known Jesus, he'd walked with him. Uh, but when he saw him in this vision, listen to what he says. Revelation 1.17, When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. He laid his right hand on me and said, Don't be afraid, for I'm the first and the last and the living one. I was dead, but look, I'm alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. John falls flat on his face. Not only will we see him, but we'll be united to him, with him, for eternity. Now I want to point something out here, and this might be new, but being united with Christ being linked with him, having the benefits that he offers is better than what Adam and Eve had in the garden before sin. See, in the garden, humanity was with God. They walked in his presence. They were there. 
now we are united to him, called co-heirs with Christ, invited into God's relationship as, as part of his family, not someone external, but part of his children. God the Son became human so we could be called children of God. He's become one of us and taken us into himself. Being united with Christ is better by far than walking without sin in the garden that Adam and Eve did. That's why Augustine, the early church father, um, he could say of Adam and Eve's disobedience, Oh, happy sin. Oh, happy sin. On one level, you're like, oh, how can that be? A happy rebellion against God. But what he meant was, in Jesus, Adam's descendants would boast more blessings than their father lost. Believers are raised to greater heights than if humanity never sinned. God has come down to earth and in Jesus, taken us into heaven, into himself. Shared his glory. Well, since heaven means being with Jesus, we actually get a taste of heaven now. If heaven means being with Jesus, then being with Jesus means heaven, right? And we can be with him now. As Christians, we have God's spirit in us. We have Christ in us. It's what Paul says to the Colossians. In Colossians 1.27, To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you. The hope of glory. See that? We have this amazing privilege to communicate with the creator of the universe, with, with Jesus. He is in us by his spirit. He's convicting us and molding us as we open his word. His spirit makes that change us and understand what he's, what he's saying and understand him and know him. We get this privilege of, of being able to speak to God. We can speak to the creator of the universe. Just try speaking to the prime minister of New Zealand. You probably won't get a, get a chance. But you can speak to the creator of all things. We get to share our anxieties and worries. We get to call him dad. We get to praise him for his amazingness. So often, I think I view my kind of daily quiet time, the time I want to open up God's word, with the same apathetic view of heaven that I've adopted. I think, yeah, I know this is good for me. I know I need to do it. It's something I've got to do. I get to be with Jesus. I get to hear him, be pointed to him, pray to him. I get a taste of heaven now. If my picture of heaven is so focused on me, of course my quiet times are going to be, oh, what does this have to say just to me? How's this going to change my life? How's this going to make me have a a better marriage or uh, make me a better parent or a better worker or a better humanity? I'm going to be so me focused. But if I recognize that heaven is about God and his glory and that he gets to share that with me, then as I open his word and as I pray to him, I am in the presence of God. I get a taste of heaven now. Spurgeon said, if we don't go to heaven before we die, we shall never get there afterwards. If we don't go to heaven before we die, we shall never get there afterwards. If we don't experience the amazingness of who Jesus is and what he's done, then how we, we don't know him. Because heaven is about Jesus and his glory. I 
I think we spend our lives so often like tadpoles. Bear with me. <laughs> like tadpoles swimming around in a, in a little tank. And we're consistently looking at each other, trying to be better tadpoles. How can you be a better tadpole? How can you be like faster through the water? How can you just be an awesome tadpole? How can you think about the way you can be the best parent tadpole? And you can have the great t- tadpole marriage and help me to be a really good tadpole worker and just work for the good of, of the fishbowl and for humanity and for what's going on. When in reality, we get to be frogs. Like, Jesus is something far, far, far greater. We get to be caught up with that. We don't get to be little tadpoles swimming around a bowl. We get to be kind of amazingly in, in, transformed into, into Christ's image. We're so focused on what we are now rather than what we will be, what we're being transformed into, the amazingness of the glory we will have. Tadpoles look disgusting, don't they? Little brown lumps just kind of floating around. And, and, so, and a frog? Well, you might think it looked disgusting as well. But comparatively, right? Well, how much greater is the image into which we're being transformed, the glory of God? How much greater is the opportunity we have to speak to the creator of the universe and to know him, be shaped by him and be molded by him? Friends, heaven is for real. It's for real. But it's all about Jesus. It's all about him. And when he returns or when we breathe our last breath, if you trust in him, you'll be with him for eternity. With him. The more we realize that, the more we focus our efforts and our energies on who we are in Christ and what he has done and the amazingness of his glory, the richer and sweeter and the more glorious every day will be, won't it? I am in him. He is in me. Heaven is my home. I'm a child of God. Every day is one day closer. For the glory of God is mankind's treasure. Spending our time remembering how amazing he is and that he captures us up in his glory and allows us to share in relationship with himself. That is what I need to desire. That is what I'd be crazy not to desire. If you're here today and you're checking out Jesus, I want to say, look at this picture of heaven. If you're here today and you've been a Christian all your life, look at this picture of heaven for it is Jesus. It's amazing. It is glorious. And we get to share in it. The glory of God is mankind's treasure. But to miss out on that, has got to be the greatest travesty known to man, hasn't it? Won't we go out from here and this picture held out from us, focused on Jesus, eager to experience the great joy that he gives us so that we might glory in God's name being held high? Let's pray that we do that. Father God, this morning, we want to thank you that in your word, you you capture us up and show us the reality of heaven, your son, Jesus, where you are most clear, clearly glorified. Lord, we ask that we get a sense of who you are and what you've done 
and that we might treasure the great joy we have of experiencing you now and of sharing with you in eternity forever. Father, we ask for our friends that are here that are thinking through these, these things of, of what heaven is like and who you are. Lord, we ask that you would show them how incomparably great heaven is compared to rest of, the rest of life. Lord, may we focus on the image we are being transformed into and so shape our lives around that reality. We pray this in your son's name.